You know, family matters. And we know that in every family, we are all in a family of Christ, right? In every family, it's either we compete with one another or we will complete each other. Amen? So I remember one day when my wife came to me, she was a little bit upset. And I want you to know, when your wife is a little bit upset with you, it's not a very good thing. So she came to me and she was saying, I'm a bit upset, I mean, basically because I've been very busy at work, doing God's work, you know, doing God's work. So I sometimes neglected the family a little bit here and there, you know, and neglected the affairs of the home here and there. So she used this analogy to get true to me. She used the anal analogy of the government, the cabinet ministers, their roles upon both of us. So she started saying, you know, she said, I'm the home minister, you know. Yeah, because I make sure that the home is well taken care of. I make sure that all the supplies of the home is replenished and the house is clean. See, I'm the home minister. I said, wow, very good, very good. Then she said, I'm also the education minister. I handle our, our eldest kids' uh, uh, examination and all the studies. So I'm the education minister. I said, of course, if I teach, she'll fail. So it's best that you are the education minister. Great, please carry on. Then she said, I'm also the finance minister. I'm the finance minister because I will budget for the family and ensure that we don't overspend. Then I said, wow, very good. It's true, her math is better than mine. Then she asked me, so what do you do? <laughs> wow, I tell you, that was tough, you know. Anything you say, sure wrong, right? So in this friendly conversation, I realized that as a family, I should not compete with my wife, but to complete the family unit with my role. And so I told her, I said, I guess no choice, dear, no choice. That makes me the prime minister. <laughs> I tell you, it was the end of the friendly conversation. She looked at me, she didn't know what to say, she walked off. We're on a, but we're fine, we're fine. <laughs> we're on a sermon series of Family Matters. So turn to a friend and say, Family Matters. The title for today says, Gathered, Complete or Compete. And the big idea is God wants us to be discerning in how we behave when we gather. You see, our church is our family. We are all family members, and we as the church often talk about unity, and it means to be one in a common purpose. The question is, as a church, are we complete in one purpose, or are we competing against one another? When we gather as a church in our services, in our homes, in Bukibatok, or anywhere, are we thinking of others, or are we only thinking about ourselves? A family unit must think for one another. Because if a family unit doesn't think for one another, then there will be issues of self-entitlement. There will be issues of personal agendas as well. That will break a family unit. And so as we look into 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the church in Corinth was a family unit, but they had issues as well. So Paul was trying to address certain things with them. Paul was addressing two situations that was caused by one bad attitude. Everybody say, bad attitude. 
And the bad attitude is not considering one another when they gather. They did not consider one another as they gathered. So in chapter 11, we see two distinct ways that Paul was addressing the church in Corinth, where they were not considering one another when they gathered. So two distinct ways the church did not consider one another. Okay, the women and the men in worship during that time, they were disregarding some very customary distinctions. We'll talk about it later. And then the second thing that they did not consider one another was during the Lord's Supper as they abused the Lord's Supper by making a distinction according to their social status, high class, low class. We'll talk about it as we go along. So let's look at the first matter that Paul addressed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 13 and 16, it says, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Is anyone, verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So what was the problem? Well, some women, either they were praying or prophesying or were arguing for the right to do so, without the customary head covering or a proper hairstyle of those days. Well, three reasons possibly why they were thinking that way. Number one, the issue of the marital status or the allegiance. In the first century Corinthian culture, you must understand their culture, right? One of the many ways a woman showed that she was in a proper relationship with her husband or if she was married, was through the appropriate head covering. So that's in those days, they have a proper head covering to say that I belong to this person or so, all right? Or I'm married, right? For long, for long hair. The lack of such head covering or the lack of long hair was signifying infidelity to God and to her husband. So in those days, that was the culture. Well, the second thing is about the issue of modesty. A woman's hair was considered a common object of lust in those days. That means if you have very long hair and you show it to everybody, it's like, wow, very lustful, you know, to the, to the men. So the Eastern Mediterranean women, they were expected to cover their hair. They're supposed to cover their hair. To fail to cover their hair was thought to provoke men's lust just like how a scantily clad woman, a dressed woman, is taught to provoke men's lust in today's world. Okay, so that was in those days. Well, another issue, the issue of proper distinction between man and female, male and female. The lack of head covering ignored the distinction between male and female in those days. And so it brought shame upon themselves. All right, so... Paul was addressing a lot of all these issues. And so the women confused equality. They said, we are equal with men, we're equal with men. But they were confusing equality with sameness or the lack of gender difference. So that was what Paul was explaining to them. He said, I have an issue with all of you in this manner. So what is the solution that Paul was addressing and giving to all of them? Well, the application is consider one another. Consider one another. Consider one another by being modest. 
So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 to 6. It says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her cover her head. So Paul's aim was to help the Corinth church understand that their dressing must be in consideration of others. So please understand that was the culture of those days. The expression of one's individual freedom should not cause another member of the family to be distracted. That was what Paul's saying. In Singapore, it's okay for women to wear sleeveless. I see some women wearing sleeveless here, right? But in another country today, in another country, for a woman to wear sleeveless is considered improper. In fact, in, another, in other countries, you have to wear headdress, right? So, it's all about context and the culture of the day. So, the other thing is, being modest, what's the importance of being modest? Being modest achieves two things. Number one, it honours one another. We honour one another. By being modest, we honour one another by being considerate to those who are uncomfortable seeing too much skin. So we're being very considerate. So what do I mean? In Singapore, we are a conservative society. Some of us are uncomfortable. Some of us are uncomfortable seeing others revealing too much skin. Sometimes even the body-hugging type of clothes make some people uncomfortable. You know, because our aircon system is so good, some of us are actually very worried for y'all that it'll be too cold for you. No, I'm just joking, okay? <laughs> there are different ones of us who are affected by sight. And I don't mean just the men. Women too. Lust is not an issue for men. Lust is also an issue for women. And a lady friend of mine said, you know, we all always say, oh, our men always very lustful. But I want you to know it's the same for women because a friend of mine, a lady friend of mine, she said she'll go to Orchard Road, no, to go look at men. Yeah, I'm not kidding you. And she said she calls them eye candy, right? And men, we also, you know, sometimes we all go Orchard, no, not me, lah. <laughs> right? Men will look at another woman lustfully and call them eye candy too. So last is a real thing. So we honour one another by being modest. The other thing about being modest is that we honour Christ. By being honest, we honour Christ. We honour Christ by not drawing attention to ourselves by our dressing. Because Christ should be the centre of attention whenever we come together. Can somebody say amen? While dressing well, to come to church is honouring God. We must also check our heart's motivation. We must check our heart's motivation. When we choose a certain type of dressing, men and women, uh, 
It's our motivation meant to turn heads to ourselves or are we wanting to keep people's attention to God? Do we want to dress a certain way so that we say, oh, when I wear like that, I'm sure people will observe me. What is your heart's motivation? Is God the center of attention or are we drawing attention to ourselves? We can still dress well without turning heads to ourselves. Can somebody say amen? So we can still dress well. So we need to consider one another by being modest. So another topic Paul was addressing about dressing, <laughs> Paul was addressing about dressing was on the gender distinction, was on this issue of gender distinction. And he says, have proper distinction in our dressing. Have proper distinction. We consider one another through this proper distinction between male and female. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 13 to 16. It says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature, okay, this word nature. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman wears long hair, it is for her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And I want to highlight here, God created order, God's created order has a distinction between male and female. Genesis 1, uh, Genesis chapter 5, Verse 1 and 2, it says, This is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, He created them. And He blessed them and named them man when they were created. So God's created order has a distinction. Male and female. We need to understand what Paul is trying to say here. Paul is not saying that men must wear short hair only or, or that women must have long hair. I'm sure there are some women here who have short hair. So are you in sin? No, no, no. Relax, huh? cool it, okay? Why you all laugh so loud? Oh, there was a very loud laugh there. Paul is not saying that. The example of the word nature, all right? The word nature Paul meant here is regarding the natural feelings of their culture. The natural feelings of their culture. Paul was explaining that the norm of that day was such that men have short hair and women have long hair. But today, our norms are a little bit different. But we'll learn about principles in the Bible later, okay? We'll talk about it. So today, in Singapore, our Norms are very different, right? Ladies with short hair still look very distinctively a woman. That's fine. And vice versa. The, the point Paul is driving here is that women needs to be distinctively recognized as a woman in her appearance. Similarly for a man to be distinctively recognized as a man. There are sometimes even, you know, at the altars, some people come up and then we, we, we don't know men or women. So we don't know how to pray. 
Yeah, sometimes that's, that's, that's the real truth, you know. Some people, um, God bless my sister, or is that a brother? God bless this child of God. All right. So this portion of dressing that Paul was addressing was to remind the body of believers to be modest in consideration of other fellow believers. Have a very clear distinction in our dressings according to our gender. So, that's the dressing issue. Let's look at the second matter that Paul addressed to the Corinth church. He was talking about the abuse of the Lord's Supper. So the first one was, they had no distinction. And then, don't know male or female. Yeah, that kind of thing, right? So now, they talk about the Lord's Supper. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 to 21 and 33. It says here, but in the following instructions, I do not command you. Means he's upset with them. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine, genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Wow, very serious. Huh? For in the eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And when, verse 33 says, So then, my brothers, when you come to eat together, you must learn to wait for one another. In the first matter that Paul addressed, he said that there must be a clear distinction of male and female. Now, in the second matter, which is this Lord's Supper, he started by rebuking the church for having a distinction. He rebuked them, scolded them. So what happened in the church was that there was division. There were divisions among themselves. Some were despised and neglected by the faith community. So like us today, some of you may say, hey, you primary school and uh, low class lah. Then I, young adult, I'm working, I high class. Okay, something like that. Huh? <laughs> Let's remember what this gathering was all about. Let's remember what this gathering was all about. The background for the meal itself was the Jewish Passover. It was a sacred meal and a celebration. How many of you remember when we take part communion, right, last week? When they partook of the Lord's Supper, it was meant to be in remembrance of what Christ did for us and His sacrifice. This meal was a sacred meal. When they partook of the Lord's Supper, Christ's presence was with them at the table. The bread and the cup represents His sacrifice on the cross by reminding us of His broken body and shed blood. Remember the cup and the wafer that we take? There was a divine communion and a spiritual experience at the Lord's Supper because they partook of the meal in the Lord's presence. However, some Corinthian Christians were not treating this as a sacred meal. They were not treating it properly. They were not treating it as a celebration of what Christ did. And they did not celebrate it for what it was meant to be. Well, you must understand the churches in Corinth in those days, 
They met in homes. They didn't have churches like this. They met in homes and they called themselves churches. They met in homes and those homes are usually the homes of the rich, the well-to-do. So in the Greco-Roman society, the Greek and the Roman society, the culture of those days, they often seat members of high-class status uh, in a special room. So in a home, can you imagine a home? Wow, there's this room, special room for all the high-class people. So they bring all the high-class people, oh, sit here. While the others who are not the high-class people, they will serve them in another room and it's a larger room, right? They'll serve them in another room. But the problem is this. These two rooms are in plain sight of each other. That means the high-class can see the low-class people. The low-class people can literally see the high-class people when they come together as a church. So the societal problems of those days crept in and spilled into the church. Their supper in the Lord's, their supper in the Lord's honour is in fact a very dishonouring thing when that happened. Why? Firstly, the high-class believers were disrespecting the believers the other believers by going ahead with their private meals. So they will eat their own. They will eat on their own. They will go ahead and makan the food first. They whack all the beef and everything. So Paul condemns such behaviours and practices within the church where there was a distinction of societal status causing the hungry believers to watch because they can see, to watch the high-class believers feast during the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Wow, beef lah, high-class pork lah, from Korea lah, you know, that kind of thing. The phrase come together was mentioned five times from verses 17 to 34. Five times. That, meant, that means it's important, right? It was definitely important to come together as a believer of as a body of believers in their homes. The Corinthian problem was not their failure to gather, but their failure truly to be God's intended people when they gathered. It's what they do when they gather. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, it tells us here, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Whenever they gathered, there was to be neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Everyone is supposed to be equal in the Lord's sight. For Paul, the believer's behavior at the Lord's Supper was a destruction. It was a destruction of the supper itself because it destroyed the very unity which that meal proclaimed by displaying the privileged status. The rich were in, were in effect destroying the church as one body of Christ. Instead of being together, they were separated. That was a problem. Instead of eating together, they ate separately and they had better food. The rich had better food, the poor and the, and the low class had lousier food. 
Well, another issue about the Lord's Supper was this. They failed to understand the true meaning of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 to 26, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, the believers in those days, they were instructed to remember what Christ did on the cross. But when they were feasting like that, they were not remembering Christ. They were supposed to remember the significance of the Lord's Supper. They were supposed to remember Jesus and what He did for all of us. They were supposed to remember Christ by proclaiming His death until He comes again. You see, the Holy Communion is not just a symbolic practice. It's not symbolic. It's just not just symbolic, but it is a very spiritual practice. It is a very spiritual moment when we come before God in, our, in communion, I want you to know, God is there with us. God is here with us. There is a spiritual significance in holy communion. Something happens when we partake of holy communion in, rep, in remembrance of Jesus. Firstly, we declare our loyalty to God. When we partake of communion together as one, we declare our loyalty to God. The Holy Communion commemorates not only the death of Jesus, but it also commemorates the covenantal relationship that Yahweh has with whoever that partakes. So whenever we partake of communion, we are always reminded of that covenantal relationship that God has has with us. It is not just a ritual. That is the significance of the Lord's Supper. It signifies that we were bought by His blood and we are identified with His death and His resurrection. That's the power that we have when we begin to partake of communion. We are loyal to God we express our loyalty to God through that moment in that covenantal relationship. The second thing about when, what happens when we partake of the Holy Communion, we begin to have the fellowship with God and the family of God. We have a fellowship with God and the family of God. You know the term, the word communion? The word communion means to share and to exchange intimate thoughts and feelings. It means to exchange intimate thoughts and feelings. That's why whenever we have communion, we always say, let's remember what Christ did for us. Let's remember what Christ did for us. And we share the intimate thought with God. We say, God, we thank you. We thank you for what you've done. Thank you for 
giving your son to us so that we may have life. There is a closeness and unity when partaking communion. As we remember what Christ did on the cross, the partaking of communion draws us closer to a unified understanding of the love that Jesus has for all of us. Jesus loved all of us equally and took away our sins and He bore our sins on the cross for us. Together as one body, we celebrate the power and the victory that is available to all in this family of believers. By this meal, we remember to to proclaim Christ's death until He comes. Amen? That is to declare the good news of our salvation that makes us all one. So Paul rebuked the church. He rebuked the church for having a social distinction which went against what Christ has done to unite the body of Christ. Then Paul went to remind the church to remember. Now, after he rebuked them and he told them to remember, that is when he gave his final point. He gave his final point about the consequence of eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Now, now let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 27 to 32. Whoever, whoever therefore, therefore means after I explain all these are the rebuke and then the remembrance, therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body of Christ, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died from it. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, verses 27 to 32 gives a new meaning to the Lord's Supper with the proper context and the historical understanding of the passage. When I was younger, in my faith, I used to think that the unworthy manner, right, signifies partaking communion with unconfessing. How many of you was like me? Don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand now. I see some of you like one of I used to think that I must make myself right before God. I must make myself so right before God and make peace with God and ask Him for forgiveness before I partake of the Lord's Supper, the communion. I used to think that when I partake of the communion, right, if there is one tiny bit of sin in me, God will set me. (laughs) I'll become chowta. Then verse 30 will apply to me that I'll become ill and I'll die. Yes, we should live and walk righteous before God. We should. In every moment of our lives, we should. And not just try to be holy just before partaking of Holy Communion. But I want you to know that wasn't the correct understanding of the word, of the term unworthy manner in this passage. So the meaning of the unworthy manner that Paul was explaining was that the believers did not consider those of a lower social standing when partaking the Lord's Supper. 
They did not consider them because they draw the line. I'm high class, you're low class. And the unworthy manner was that the believers did not remember that Christ died for them on the cross to create a new united family. By doing what they were doing, they were destroying what God meant for the Holy Communion. That is the meaning Paul was saying, eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. <clears throat> now, allow me to highlight some misconceptions of communion. All right, allow me to highlight some misconceptions. Holy Communion will solve all my problems. No. Communion is meant to unite the body of Christ and for all of us to remember what Christ did for us. The emblems cannot solve all your problems because Jesus is the answer for you, not the emblem. Communion will get me to heaven. No. Communion is not a ticket, nor an insurance or a ritual that we partake to get to heaven. Salvation comes only through believing in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. That is why we remember what He did for us on the cross. Communion will cleanse me of all sins. No. Communion is not an eraser. You are already forgiven, my dear friends. You are already forgiven by the work of Christ on the cross. That is why we again remember and appreciate what Jesus did for us. The fourth thing, communion will make me whole and healed. No. Communion is not a vitamin. Neither is it an elixir pill, sientana. It's not. If it was, the believers wouldn't have aged and died. Think about it. They wouldn't have aged and died. And if I had been eating communion all my life right now, I would have more hair. Right? This is something that God is not answering me yet. <sighs> communion was meant to unite the body of Christ. It's meant to unite the body of Christ so that we can be one without any social class and distinction. God wants us to discern in how we behave when we come together. That's the important thing. That is the key of this message. Is God honoured by our behaviours when we gather? So how do we apply this right now in our lives. Again, the application question is this. The application is to consider one another. The principle is to consider one another. Just like when we consider one another by having no distinction of status, when we partake of communion, this same principle applies to every part of our lives. The main point of this message was to remind us to consider one another without a distinction of status. Christ wants us to be united. The purpose of communion was to discern the body of Christ and to consider one another. I remember, I rem I'm reminded of Acts chapter 2 where the early church, they were all together, they had everything in common. Isn't that beautiful? No one was in lack or in need. 
And let's remember, we need to be like them. I love our cafe ministry, right? Our cafe ministry, anyone can come and eat the food. Anyone. You just give the donation thing. Can we give those who have been serving in our cafe ministry a big hand, right? And so let's remember the principle, the principle of considering one another. As we consider fellow believers in this house, right, we must also consider those outside of the house of God. Because our walk is not only in this church building, right? When we go out there, we are meeting the, with those who are not Christians yet. Our walk must reflect Christ in us to those outside of this church building. Are we living as Christ images to the world we are living in? Do we treat people with respect regardless of social status? Do we treat the CEO with greater respect while we despise the cleaners that clean our streets? In conclusion, the principle and application for 1 Corinthians 11 is to consider one another. Let us consider one another by having a distinction in our dressing. Alright? In our dressing, let's be modest, check our motivation so that God is the center of our attention when we gather. Let us also dress in a manner that shows the distinction of our gender. We must also consider one another by having no distinction in our societal status when we gather. So, are we complete as a body of believers or do we compete with each other for privileges and attention? Let's be committed to the significance of the Lord's Supper by considering one another in the house when we gather. Today as we close, let us all take heed to Paul's reminder for us to remember what Christ has done for us on the cross. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that God, we are to consider one another. That we are to discern the body when we gather in your name when we partake of communion, we do it in a worthy manner. And I pray, oh God, that today, as we remember the principle of considering one another, Lord, let us lift this out as Christ's images to the world we're living in so that they can see Jesus in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Shall we all stand together? I'm just going to end this service a little bit different from the norm. When we talk about the Lord's Supper, we talk about remembering Him. Remembering Him, what He has done for us. Amen. So today, let's remember what God has done for each and every one of us. Let's appreciate Christ through this song. Can we do that? You bled for me. Come on. You bled. On the cross at Calvary And you laid your crown For my joy and victory Come on, say What a sacrifice 
And just so I could breathe this life My hope forever My Jesus Christ You bled for me You bled for me On the cross at Calvary And you laid your crown For my joy and victory Oh, what a sacrifice and just so I could breathe this life, I hope forever, my Jesus Christ. Oh, my Jesus Christ. Come on, say hallelujah. thank you for what you've done on the cross for us Jesus what you've done on the cross for us because God it is by your work on the cross that we can experience the holy communion with you to be so close to you to remember what you've done for us and I pray oh God that we will always remember that we proclaim your death and resurrection until the day you come again so Lord, let us help us, help us to remember that as we walk out of here, that we will learn to consider one another, to discern the body when we gather together. Because God, it's all about you. It's not about us. It's all about you. 
in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, can we give God a big hand of praise? Hallelujah. You may be seated.